Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. We're in the studios in the in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is the last day of September, 9-30 or 39, 2022. Um, I have had an, I, I, an hiatus from doing lectures for, uh, I guess, about five days. And the main reason for that, there are collateral reasons, but the main reason is I've been writing a review article and I've been devoting all my time to that. It's a lot of research. And so I just didn't have time to uh, publish a lecture, but that's not the case today. So let's go with, uh, I think this is Membrane Biochemistry Lecture 59. Now we're going to go into the vault here and look at some classical membrane biochemistry. And I'm doing this because I'm about ready to wrap up. So remember when we transport across cell membranes, that permeability is variable. It's variable topologically and also temporally. So what kind of properties of the membrane give us this transport mechanism? Well, first of all, that's the amount of protein in the membrane that does play a role. In fact, the availability of specific transport proteins. The cholesterol content also plays a role in terms of ordering the membrane so that water channels can be uh, generated. And of course, lipid composition and sequence in what I call three-dimensional space-time. So what are the relative properties of the molecules that we're talking about transporting? Obviously, size, charge density, and because these are primarily uh, hydrophobic domains, that is the membrane, lipid solubility. <clears throat> we can talk about passive and active transport, obviously, as well. Passive is based on the inherent energetics of the individual kinetic properties of all the molecules. We can talk about open systems or across partitions. These are all properties of diffusion. We can talk about net movement down a chemical concentration gradient until some new state of homeostatic equilibrium can be reached. There's always a direct correlation to temperature for diffusion, and there's an indirect correlation to molecular size. That means the larger, the slower the diffusion. Also means that size doesn't always matter. Because if you have a highly hydrophobic substance, like a fatty acid, it's going to move through the membrane much more quickly, diffuse through the membrane, than, oh, let's say, a charged amino acid, okay, which could be considerably of lower molecular mass. So another property of diffusion is it's slower with increasing distance. And by distance, I do mean that three-dimensional space-time, because time is important. The slower component of that sentence states that, but also the amount of time where conductance or diffusion is occurring is itself a product of the diffusional properties of the membrane, and as they change in very short time intervals, in terms of lipid turnover, for example and polarity, okay? 
So simple diffusion, when you have movement of lipophilic molecules, it's directly through that bilayer, which is primarily glycerophospholipid and sphingolipid and cholesterol. So the diffusion rate is simply defined as a ratio of one over the thickness of the membrane. And the diffusion rate to the membrane surface area is important. Now, membranes, when you think about a normal bilayer, on the outside, you have extracellular fluid. Then you have the membrane surface area, which is a product of the polar head groups. Then you have to consider molecular size of the membrane lipids and then molecular size of the solute being transported. And that is also... Um, consideration for lipid solubility. Then you have the membrane thickness and the composition of the lipid, particularly if it's a bilayer, the bilayer. So we can talk about uh, certain laws of diffusion. And hopefully you've heard these before, but one is called Fick's law of diffusion. That's F-I-C-K apostrophe S. And it's the first law that first related or that initially related the diffusive flux to the concentration field. Done so by populating that flux as it goes from regions of high concentration to regions of low concentration with a magnitude that is proportional to the gradient itself. So that becomes a spatial derivative. So the diffusion rate, again, we look at the ratio, of surface area by concentration gradient by membrane permeability divided by the membrane thickness. So I can generate a diffusion, diffusion coefficient. That is a coefficient that is a physical constant dependent upon molecular size and other properties of the diffusing substance, as well as the temperature and pressure of the system. So diffusion, diffusion coefficients of one substance into the other are commonly determined experimentally, and then we have them presented in rel relative uh, reference tables, actually. So in the cell, the aqueous versus lipid uh, aspect for the partition coefficient are explained as two immiscible phases where the diffusion between aqueous versus lipid, those two phases, is um, that diffusion is restricted according to the solubility coefficient of a solute. So in that context, the partition coefficient is the ratio of the concentrations of a given molecule in the two phases of the mixture of two immiscible liquids at KEQ equilibrium. So Fick's law then is uh, is the the actual term in mathematics is dQ over dt, and that's the rate of diffusion, and that's equivalent to uh, now a new ratio dAk subscript p over h. D is the diffusion coefficient. A is the surface area of the membrane. And the K sub P is the partition coefficient.
that whole numerator is then divided by H, which is the membrane thickness. Now you multiply that term times the um, C1 minus C2 equation. C1 minus C2 is the concentration difference for the solute. And in general, when you're talking about the diffusion of a solute, C1 is far, far greater than C2, right? Because it's a normal way that diffusion goes from C1 to C2. That's why it's C1 minus C2 in the equation. Now, for protein-mediated transport, for all lipophobic molecules, two mediated transport categories exist. Passive transport, that's facilitated diffusion, and then active transport. The two categories of transporter proteins, and there's multiple subtypes of these, obviously, are channel proteins, and they provide a rapid but not very selective movement, typically for small and of low molecular mass molecules. Then you have carrier proteins. It's a much slower transport, but it's very selective. And it can, it can accommodate larger molecules, obviously. Now, there are other functions of membrane proteins. And, for example, channel proteins. Let's talk about those. Those are for small molecules, as I've said. The channel is essentially a um, series of columns of open cylinders that transverse the membrane from the outer to the inner leaflet. An example of those would be something called aquaporins. And aquaporins, you have about a hundred ion channels described for aquaporin type of these type of channel proteins. And the selectivity, of course, again, is based on diameter and on some level of recognition of the solute. And they all have a gate option. And if they have a gate, then they have within the protein itself, a gate region. This is gonna obviously be a domain of amino acids. So I'm being generic here. I'm at the 14,000 foot level because I'm going, you know, when I get specific, I want you to have all of these concepts in mind. So, you will have the difference between open channels, which are essentially pores, and they can have gates, but the gates are usually open, and they're referred to as leak channels. And then you have gated channels. And in gated channels, most of the time, gates are closed. So you have a chemically gated channel, and that's usually controlled by some secondary messenger molecule, or sometimes directly by a ligand. Then you have the VGCs, the voltage-gated channels, and they're controlled at first understanding via the polarity of the cell and the alteration of the polarity. And then you have mechanically-gated channels, and those are controlled by the physical state of the cell, and that includes most importantly, the temperature of the system, and also the stretching and the elasticity and plasticity of the cell membrane, which of course is largely dictated by 
membrane lipid components. So carrier proteins, these are a second type of transport protein. They never actually form a direct connection between the extracellular fluid and the intracellular fluid. They bind molecules and change conformation. Typically, they're involved in movement of smaller and lower molecular mass organic molecules. Because ions use channels or carriers, and so the carrier proteins are typically very slow in terms of their rate of transport or rate of diffusion. Then we could talk about different ways of classifying these uh, channels and these transport mechanisms. You have uniport versus co-transport. Uniport can include the symport. Now, symport is usually a co-transporting mechanism, but can function as a uniport mechanism. But symport basically means molecules are carried in the same direction. For example, glucose moves through the transporter with sodium ions. Whereas an antiport, which is always a co-transport system, is where molecules are carried in opposite direction. For example, the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. So what about facilitated fusion? Well, this is a form of carrier-mediated passive transport. Many of the characteristics of facilitated diffusion are the same as the simple diffusion. But what they add, the facilitated diffusion mechanism, is specificity, the potential for competition, and the absolute reliability of saturation kinetics. So you can saturate the system and therefore the rate of movement stops. Right. So summary passive transport diffusion is of three types, simple. You also have osmosis and you have facilitated diffusion. Again, diffusion is where particles are always moving and the particles move from areas of high concentration to low concentration. And they will move until equilibrium is reached and the particles move typically in diffusion parameter without any energy being required. So this is basically passive transport. So with osmosis, you have, uh, think about the movement of say water and sugar across a selectively permeable membrane. In one a partition, let's say the partition to the left of that selectively permeable membrane, you can have low sugar concentration, high water concentration. And then on the other side of that barrier, you can have high sugar concentration, low water concentration. So osmosis will dictate that the water will move to the partition, through the partition, from left to right because of the higher sugar concentration. So that's an osmotic diffusion effect. Okay eventually get the equilibrium. So diffusion is solvent and solute particles move to equalize concentrations. That's where there is basically no semi-permeable membrane involved, as opposed to osmosis, where only solvent molecules move, 
where solvent particles basically stay stationary, saying the same thing, but from a different parallax. And movement is through always in osmosis, some kind of semi-permeable membrane. Now, there's a place in a Venn diagram where diffusion and osmosis have um, equivalency. And this is where you equalize the concentration of two solutions, such as when you think about a hypotonic solution and a hypertonic. It's similar to our glucose example a minute ago. From hypotonic to hypertonic, water will move from the hypo to the hyper. And so that's because the solute molecules that are in the hypertonic solution will draw the water through that osmotic diffusion uh, parameter. So osmosis will eventually allow for the both solutions to come to an equilibrium. So the hypotonic solution, you have water molecules, they're moving through the selective permeable membrane, and the hypertonic solution you have solute molecules with clusters of water molecules associated with it. So obviously, eventually, the water will reach, reach some equilibrium. And that's based on the fact that osmosis is indeed a special type of diffusion. It's where you have movement of water across that semi-permeable membrane from a region of high concentration to a region of low concentration. And where you have dissolved molecules, such as ions or organic compounds like glucose, those are always called solutes. Most solutes don't cross the membrane. So as solute concentration increases, free water concentration will decrease. Hence the movement from the hypotonic to the hypertonic. So hypertonic is high solute, hypotonic low solute. So water moves from hypotonic to hypertonic across a semi-permeable membrane where that membrane will not allow the diffusion back of the solute. Right. Let's talk about active transport. It's the movement from low to high concentration. ATP is needed here. ATP hydrolysis in particular creates a state of disequilibrium. You have a primary direct active transport. This is where ATPases, sometimes called ATPase pumps, are used. And these could be uniport or antiport. Then you have a secondary indirect active transport. And these are typically symport, and they can also be antiport. Okay. So primary active transport is where ATP energy directly fuels the transport. Most important for the sodium-potassium pump. So you have a sodium-potassium ATPase. And it uses up a tremendous amount of cellular ATP, about 30%. And it establishes a sodium concentration gradient, which generates a potential which can be harnessed for other cellular functions. Okay. So in the extracellular fluid, you have high sodium, low potassium. In the intracellular fluid, you have high potassium, low sodium. And you drive the ATPase because of the concentration gradient, a differential between the sodium and potassium. 
talk about secondary active transport. This is active indirect ATP, ATP use. It's where we use again the potential across the membrane. It's stored in the concentration gradient. So you're coupling the energetics, uh, uh, which are basically a kinetic of one molecule with movement of another molecule. So that's kinetic energy. And basically that is defined as energy in the action <clears throat> or the energetics of motion, kinetic being motion, comes from the Greek word. Now you also have what's called a potential energy and that's a stored energy, not a kinetic one yet. And that's the energy essentially of position. Position of what? The solutes and the solvent. Now we can start talking about some more parameters or characteristics. We talk about specificity. Specificity, for example, glucose transporters. And the glucose transporters are called GULT or GLUT. And particularly, they're just for hexoses. You can talk about competition. So you can have competitive inhibition. Sometimes it's applied in pharmaceuticals and also in many medical practices. Then you have saturation. And saturation is involved in a, a numerical metric that's associated with the number of carriers which can become titrated so that no more movement occurs after they are titrated or saturated. Vesicular transport is, is used for the movement of large molecules across the membrane. Think about phagocytosis. Think about endocytosis, which includes penocytosis, receptor-mediated endocytosis, and another system called potocytosis, which is larger volume. The third kind of vesicular transport includes, of course, the exit. That's called exocytosis. The phagocytosis requires energy. Cell engulfs a particle into a vesicle via some kind of protein um, clathrate formation. For example, some leukocytes engulf bacteria. Vesicles formed are much larger than those formed by endocytosis, and the phagosome essentially fuses with the lysosome. So then you generate the phagolysosome intracellularly. Endocytosis requires energy. There are no particular protein prehensions or pseudopodia. What you have is membrane um, surfaces that don't require indentations. So when the protein folds within the membrane and makes that uh, for example, a clathrin pit, that's known as a pseudopodia or membrane surface indent. Endocytosis doesn't involve that, at least not in the parameter we're discussing, discussing here. There are some specific examples which I can relate to you later. Endocytosis typically involves smaller vesicles and it's non-selective. So for example, a type of endocytosis is penocytosis we mentioned. That's for just fluids, fluids with bulk dissolved 
solutes. Endocytosis can be selective, usually is selective, and that's when you have something like a receptor-mediated endocytosis, and this is where we have the clathrin-coated pits. For example, a very good example is a low-density lipoprotein cholesterol and triacylglycerol movement. Potocytosis, which is, again, this entire domain carrier exchange process would typically be associated with the KVOLA, which are these very durable membrane domains, which have a specific enrichment of certain sphingolipids, which make those membranes resistant to detergent and also to rapid fluxes in pH and even temperature. Those are domains that are made up, the KVOLA is made up of lipid membrane raft domains, which are manufactured in the endoplasmic reticulum, matured in the Golgi, and then processed either to more endomembranous space or out to the plasma membrane. Most KVOLA are in the plasma membrane. So, example, fat cells have KVOLI, where they're primarily involved in moving lipid. So these KVOLI were first described as small lipid vesicular trafficking domains. And so if fast cells have these KVOLI near their surface, and they abundantly express this protein, which the name is given to, KVOLIN1 or CAV1. That CAV1 is a major structural polypeptide. And there are three members of the family of these. There's peripheral, KVOLI-associated membrane proteins, and they also have KVOLI-associated cavins or cavins. So the presence of KVOLI in adipocytes suggests, because of what adipocytes do, um, they function to take up and store fatty acid, typically as triacylglycerol, which occurs in the fed state, which means in humans, insulin secretion has occurred. And the KVOLI are able to also allow for, once the triacylglycerol is entered into the adipocyte, uh, the storage of that triacylglycerol, but also lipase-mediated hydrolysis of the triacylglycerol and release of the fatty acid. And this is in response within the caveolar structure to fasting or starvation, and also during active aerobic exercise. So there's a trafficking of high concentration of fatty acid in and out of the adipocyte, and that's where the caveoli are positioned as domains. Now, they possess, those fatty acids, as they're moving in and out, a potential for lipotoxicity because the fatty acid itself can act as a mild detergent because of that carboxylic acid and methyl terminus and then that long-chain alkane, right? That is basically a detergent, an amphipathic molecule. And because of that, fatty acids can't just move in and out of membranes without some kind of mediation. And here it's not a protein so much. It is a series of proteins that generate an ultrastructure called a KVOA. 
and the caveole then um, pre prevents the plasma membrane of the adipocyte from becoming um, lipotoxicity mediated uh, dissolution of the permeability of the membrane. So therefore, KVLR detergent resistant member domains, you've heard me talk about these before, obviously, and they function to buffer the effects of fatty acid movement, bulk movement, as during times of lipase mediated transport of fatty acids out of the adipocyte. So the proteins, the KVOLINs, basically modulate the rate of transmembrane fatty acid flux. And again, this is across the adipocyte plasma membrane. We're going to stop here. This was just a lecture to let you know that I'm still here. And I wanted to go back to the basics because we're about ready to finish this series of lectures. And so I'm doing that again. It's a refresher. I promise you I am going to do a, um, a bona fide uh, video lecture to finish all this. And I don't know if it'll be the next one, but it's coming up soon. Anyway, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios giving you a very basic lecture. We didn't talk about any publications at all this time. Don't worry, next time we will add several. But it's a Friday afternoon. I thought you might like this to finish off the week. And uh, I'm going to say bye for now. This is the 30th of September, 2022. Bye.